The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. You have never understood us. Never understood the children of Gaia. The earth, that complex life in the aggregate, the intelligent living biosphere, she is the only God, the only life, and we protect her. She's dying, Senora, and with her all life ends. This must not happen. Well, I'm bored with the study of sociopaths, and I'm unimpressed with arguments in support of murder. There are greater evils than death. Her sufferings is the greatest evil of all. Morning, London. It's Thursday, June 26, 2008. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we will be with you from now until noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be And welcome to the show this fine morning before the long weekend here in London, Ontario, Canada. 519-661-3600 is the open line number. You can call to join our conversation today. Or you can visit, or write us rather, uh, uh, through email, justwritechrw at gmail.com. Or, of course, visit our website, uh, justwritemedia.org, to get a complete archive of all of our past shows as well. Now, that opening clip you heard on the show today was from a rather obscure movie called The Cusp, a sort of obscure science fiction action adventure that's about, I guess, 11 or 12 years old now. The opening scene in that movie looked just very much like the scenes from 9-11, which I found quite alarming, particularly since it was done a few years before that. And as the movie progresses, we learn about an environmentalist terrorist plot to deflect an asteroid to hit the Earth so as to cleanse it of its human virus. So I could, you know, I could think of no more fitting opening to the show, given both the subject matter of our focus today and given the expertise and qualifications of our guest today. And I'd like to welcome into our studio for the second time, believe it or not, John Thompson, president of the McKenzie Institute. Hello, John. How are you this morning? I'm just fine. Thanks for the invite, Bob. Well, thanks for being here. It's uh, Believe it or not, uh, you know, you were our first live guest on the show, and that was way back in May of last year, I think on the seventh show. So if you want to check that out, it's show number seven, uh, when John and I talked a lot about uh, issues of terrorism, organized crime, political extremism, propaganda, conflict, and related matters. Those are the areas in which John is pretty much an expert. And the last time we talked, uh, we discussed Afghanistan, Iraq, Iran, and the chain of actions and events following much of the 9-11 events. Now, the title of one of John's latest essays appearing in one of uh, the McKenzie Institute's publications, the McKenzie Newsletter, suggests uh, a certain level of frustration, I think. Am I right, John, when you say (laughs) explaining terrorism Again, <laughs> it sounded a little bit like you had a bit of frustration there. <laughs> yeah, the uh, the essay concerned points. I just ha- keep having to bring up uh, again and again and again. 
you know, when, I, when I'm talking to uh, a variety of audiences, but there's a number of misconceptions about terrorism. We keep repeating the same mistakes time and time mm-hmm. again, you know, especially when I hear someone saying something like root causes. Right. I, I immediately... Now, is your frustration because of your or your your need to repeat this message because of a large ignorance or resistance to the message itself? Well, no. I mean, th- this or is both. An, yeah. This is an age where people tend to operate on their own preconceptions, and, and some issues I'm quite guilty of doing the the same thing myself, sure. as is everybody. And mm-hmm. there are a number of preconceptions about terrorism that people are loath to give up, and. Most people are, are prisoners of particular perspectives, so you get someone who's a political scientist or a, a diplomat, and their reaction to terrorism is always the same. Well, let's go through some of those now. You basically listed five in this article. So let's do one at the, basically one at a time. The first one you listed was the one you just mentioned, root causes, the idea that terrorism is inevitably the result of poverty or injustice, and that if we work to resolve this, then the terrorist will cease to attack us. You say this is not so... Well, I, absolutely. And, of course, you notice I immediately brandish the names of uh, Nelson Mandela, Martin Luther King, Lech Walesa, uh, Gandhi, all mm-hmm. of whom faced real issues and resolved them without resort to violence. But then you compare them to some of the most famous terrorists, uh, uh, Yasser Arafat, uh, Amen al-Zawahiri, uh, Carlos uh, the, the Jackal, um, and so on, mm-hmm. who were all wealthy sons of... Uh, well-educated men who could have done anything they wanted to, but they chose to become terrorists and rejected other options. You know, there's a need to commit violence. It's a psychological need, and this is the the ultimate motivation for the terrorist. He, it's not the cause. It's his interior psychological terrain that is always the real root of terrorism. I, I think that sounds plausible to me. I mean, I guess to most people, if you were talking about one or two or three people, but when you see what appears to be virtually a nation of people, or or so many of them, are they all suffering from the same psychological issue, or is that possible? <laughs> I mean, it's almost like mass hysteria in a way. Isn't well, it? sometimes it is. Remember, uh, there are leaders uh, in history who can create incidents of, of mass hysteria, especially when you take control over all the means of uh, communication and education within a particular population. I mean, we look back 60 years ago at the uh, Japanese who'd rather commit suicide than surrender or or what the Germans were doing. It's possible. But the leaders themselves are always operating on their own. And and the first thing that they always do is, is basically try and hijack everyone else into their particular course. That, you know, so... Are their followers not aware of this, or is, or is there something else motivating the followers that that's not motivating the leaders, or are they all being motivated by their own little... You, you know where I'm going? Like, uh, is everybody in the well, yeah, same I mean, basket because they all believe the same same crazy thing, or they all have their own s- sort of selfish motivations? Well, no, I, I wasn't really going to be talking about mass movements, but two no. books I will always recommend all mm-hmm. the time. I reread them every few years just because they're worth it. Uh-huh. Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds. A book from 1843, and it's oh, still in print. Excellent. For good reason. About basically how a, a population will pick up and run off in a, an aberrant direction for a while. Also, Eric Hoffer, the True Believer. True Believer got that one on my yeah, shelf. Yeah, that is always worth re- worth. Uh, sorry, always worth rereading mm-hmm. every few years. I, I agree. Now, now number number two of the five, you said uh, political solutions. The notion that there is a political solution to any single terrorist group. Not true? 
No, it seldom is. In fact, actually, uh, the politicians and diplomats, in, in search for political solutions, where there really aren't any to, to resort to, often get in the way of resolving a, a particular incident of terrorism. Well, we hear that here all the time. We've got to negotiate. We've got to negotiate. The NDP scream and negotiate. The Green Party is saying the same thing, you know. Well, when you're negotiating with somebody who wants to commit violence for their own reasons, where's your opening position? Well, that's what I wonder. What are these people saying? I mean, yeah. most people think the NDP is not that crazy. Do, what do you know that they don't know? Or what? Or are they just not looking? <laughs> They're not looking. It's, a pre- I mean, it, it's, it's one of the sort of the conceits. I call it the, uh, a liberal, small-l conceit. But the person who is intelligent and well-educated assumes that anybody else uh, who is also uh, articulate must also be well-educated and, and, and share his particular values. And this is a problem we run into time and time again. I mean, you find people that don't share your values, in fact, emphatically reject them. Understood. Now, if, 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 okay, so there's no political solution, according to this point we're discussing. So the solution is therefore only a military one. Is that basically it? Um, well, well, which is political in a way, too. Yeah. Uh, uh, but I know what you mean. Not, not, you can't do this by negotiation. You can't, yeah. Because uh, they're not. No terms to negotiate, is that really? Now, ultimately, a, a terrorist always uh, expresses himself at some point in an ideology. You know, he adopts an ideology that then shapes the violence he commits. So you, you have to fight the ideology and prevent it from being attractive to other people. Uh, you have to uh, protect the population from the terrorist. And that's not just protecting him from the gunman and the bomber. Mm-hmm. It's also protecting him from the front organizations, from the preachers and teachers that... Uh, uh, basically share the ideology. Don't engage in violence. How do you do that if you're also an advocate of freedom of speech, say? That's a big thorny issue, isn't it? It is. Um, but you, you look, there, there have been some like really heroic people. I, I guess, for example, in Sri Lanka against the Tamil Tigers. The Tamil parents who are trying their hardest to keep the, their kids from uh, falling into the grip of the recruiters for the Tigers, mm-hmm. the educators who try and keep the Tiger messages out of their own schoolrooms, and it's often cost some of them their lives. You know, that those educators, those parents, are as much of the front line in, in Sri Lanka in the, the fight against the Tamil Tigers as any policeman sure. or soldier. So it's, it's almost like a, a personal censorship in a way, too. Yeah, uh, but which I don't call censorship, but that's 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 for another another day. Cause and effect number three. You say the lie that terrorists say when they say like he attacked Target X because of provocation Y. Uh, okay, we were all told that uh, uh, 9/11 happened because of a certain provocation. At least that came out later. Uh, no truth to that. No, because there's always a provocation. And if there isn't a provocation, one will be invented, often out of whole cloth. The fundamental truth of terrorism, regardless of, of the cause, I mean, you're talking about far left, far right, nationalist, religious, whatever, is that there's a predisposition to attack anyway, to, to cause harm. To, the, the terrorist is ultimately sort of like the vandal. You know, he wants to commit violence so that at least in his own mind, if not the rest of the world, he can sort of look what I did, see that was me, and, and take pride in it. Now, the, the cause is, is always secondary. That's interesting that, uh, you know, the, all three points almost so far that we discussed point to psychology, point to the basic motivations of the person. And, and number four, you get into the terrorist as leader, the, the lie that terrorists claim to speak for an entire community of people, which, 
we sort of touched on, but a lot of people still think that, don't they? Oh, sure. Uh, and usually that's because the people who, say, take, for example, the Palestinians. If they had had someone like Martin Luther King or Mahatma Gandhi, they would have, I mean, the issue would have been solved a long, long time ago. But instead, I mean, even back in the 1940s, even before Israel was created, the militants were killing the, the other perspectives in the Palestinian population, violently suppressing them. Mm -hmm. The first victim of the founder of the Tamil Tigers was a Tamil Federalist politician. So these guys come out and they say, I speak for all my people. And it's usually because they've uh, repressed or murdered every other viewpoint in the community they claim to represent. So when some terrorist stands up and says he's speaking for a particular population... He's talking about the population that's left. Yeah, and you should <laughs> never, ever, ever recognize this point at all. And yet we do, through the UN, sometimes through our own diplomatic yeah. issues. That, that must, it has to, I, I would think, uh, hurt Canada and the countries that deal with it on that way. Aren't, aren't we hurting ourselves by not recognizing that? Sure. Well, I, again, look, in, in the, the, case, the Tamil case, you know, you get the heads of some of the other Tamil parties from Sri Lanka coming over here you know, who are not allowed to function inside Tamil-populated areas inside Sri Lanka because the tigers will kill them, pleading for us to try and turn off the, the, the tiger fundraising machine here. And how much money do they get over there from Canada, North America? Is, is this significant? It's significant, mm -hmm. uh, but it's really hard to put an exact figure mm -hmm. on it. Um, well, sure you can't. We're only starting to really map out how much they've actually been transferring. Interesting. Number five, you've got, and this, this is one I've heard many times, and you see it played out in a lot of TV shows and things like that. You hear something like this. One man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. And that's the idea that the worthiness of a particular cause might excuse terrorism done in its name. Um, has there ever been anybody who could be, even for 10 minutes, be called a terrorist who we could have said was a good guy or accomplished something positive out of it that well, you can recall through history? The problem is terrorism is, is a complex issue. It, it does, it's a sort of a, a kingdom with vague boundaries because it does intersect with guerrilla warfare. It does intersect with organized crime, which, and there's never really a good organized criminal. Uh, it does intersect well, it's with... It's interesting you say that, because I keep hearing this word, uh, insurgents, okay? Yeah. Uh, the insurgents are doing this, the insurgents are doing that, and I don't hear too much about the terrorists. <laughs> it's the insurgents. Yeah. Is there some equivocation there, or is, well, are well, there two separate is, groups? Well, terrorism does. The, the ultimate point about terrorism is that you're using... the uh, Violence is an atrocity, uh, and sometimes when you're using violence, atrocity is a... Uh, an unwanted collateral, but the terrorist actually seeks to use violence as an atrocity. But also terrorism is based on deception, but self-deception most of all. And the point is, if you ever have someone who's a terrorist who's trying to build a nation, I mean, you're building your, your new country on a foundation of atrocity and deception, and you look at the results. Yasser Arafat made a complete hash of the Palestinian state. Compare Mugabe, Zimbabwe, to uh, what's emerged in South Africa. Mm. The, uh, there are some democratic states that were involved with terrorism at their very foundation, Israel and Ireland. But probably the only reason why they survived as democratic states is the first thing the founders did was turn on the terrorists among them and repress them. Um, and that was the Irish Civil War in 1922. And the Israelis, even when they needed every man and every weapon, when they were fighting off five different Arab armies, they turned on the... Uh, uh, the Stern Gang, mm -hmm. and, and basically sank their shipments of weapons. And 
basically enough of that, eh? That's yeah, we can't afford to have you around. You're too dangerous for our new country. Well, just on this whole thing of terrorism, we, we do know that a lot of terrorism is, quote, state-sponsored by other nations and stuff. And it's kind of an, an informal way, almost, of declaring war, isn't it, for those states that are actually supporting terrorism? Yeah, and that, that is one of the other conditions, that it's sort of a, a form of proxy warfare. And again, it doesn't do you any good. Those democratic countries that have dappled in it have found that sometimes the terrorist comes back and bites them on the butt. Classic case, the... Uh, the British dropping arms into Malaya under mm -hmm. Japanese occupation to the Chinese communists, right. you know, to fight the Japanese. And then three years later, in starts the insurgency that they then had to spend 20 years putting down. Um, Israel, to its great regret, helped create Hamas. Uh, India, you know, created some of the, uh, the Sikh militant groups who then went and killed tens of thousands of people. It's always a mistake. And, of course, other nations, well, dictatorships have used uh, terrorists as proxies. I mean, Iran is a current case in point. It makes it difficult for the nations being attacked to deal with it on, a, on a, the traditional way we might have handled a war or an attack. Is, is that a plus or a minus? Are we more handicapped because of this situation or this type of warfare, I mean, versus traditional where you know who's on what side, everybody wears the uniforms kind of thing? Well, yes and no. I think sometimes, in, in some cases, the best response is, you know, for example, Libya mm -hmm. was it, it busily sponsoring terrorism and insurgency in Western Europe and uh, against the United States, and of course they were backing just about every civil conflict in Africa in the 1980s. Then the U.S. Navy turned up and the U.S. Air Force turned up and bombed half of the military installations in Tripoli, and the Libyans went and behaved themselves. Sometimes it is... Mm -hmm. Best to say, okay, you're using these guys as proxies. We've got enough evidence to say you're behind it. Stop it now. Now, I have in my hand here, I just showed it to you very briefly. You saw the headline of it, and I asked you whether you might agree with it. And it's, uh, it, this, was, this actually appeared in the National Post back on June 9th, but it's a reprint from a, of an article that originally appeared in the Wall Street Journal, and basically the headline says it all, quote, in Iraq, victory is within reach. Is, do you agree with that? Um, yes, I do. But again, the, the Iraqi war is an insurgency. Actually, it's a very complex series of three insurgencies. Well, see, there, there's that word insurgent again. It's not terrorism there? Well, there's a lot of oh. terrorism. <laughs> but why would you suddenly use the word insurgent instead of terrorist? Because um, sometimes it's a little more accurate. But, but you did have the, the leftovers of the uh, of Saddam Hussein's regime mm -hmm. uh, who were engaged in, in violence against the new emerging order. That's pretty well over. Uh, the other thing is the... A combination of two factors, the American surge, but also their own behavior, because there was the, the Sunni um, insurgency, which did feature a hell of a lot of terrorism, especially by al-Qaeda. Iraq has been their main focus mm -hmm. since 2003. The problem is they have browned off so many Iraqis by their behavior that they totally rejected. And al-Qaeda's own internal communications are acknowledging now that they have been severely defeated in Iraq. The third aspect of the conflict was, again, Iran peddling inside Iraq using um, Sunni militants, especially Sadr's army, to keep the country destabilized. And that one is getting more and more under control. It's also, unfortunately, taking on more and more the shape of what it's actually been all along, now, an Iranian proxy war. Keeping things destabilized is a critical element of, of the power of these countries, isn't it? They sort of operate on crises all the time, don't they? Or is is that part of the tactic? 
It, well, it can be. I yeah. mean, Iran's interest is in a, a fragmented, unstable uh, Iraq. It's also in an Iraq that, in which the Americans cannot be seen to have any sort of measurable success at all. So they, they've been busy pumping mm. in money and guns and, and influence in the last uh, five so years. So if victory is within reach, how do we recognize it when it comes? Or how close do you think we might be? Or well, the part of, it's an attritional conflict. And mm -hmm. so part of the, the way of measuring success, I mean, it, you can't say, okay, this is a victory day. Uh, no, understood. Put yeah. the bunting out. But day by day, well, actually week by week, the casualties are getting fewer and fewer. Civil society is reasserting itself. There, there's fewer and fewer Americans being killed, fewer and fewer Iraqis being uh, murdered by uh, car bombs and, and, and death squads. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, the Iraqis themselves know that they're coming out from under the shadow. One more quick one. Just saw this in, I guess, what, was a couple of days ago, June 22nd, London Free Press. Uh, Eric Margoli. Iraq, Afghanistan wars are about oil, not democracy. And he says, let's be realistic. Afghanistan and Iraq are about oil and nothing else. What's your response to that? In deference to uh, <coughs> the, the passing of George Carlin, I won't resort to any of the seven words that he can't use on television. <laughs> um, but I, I think crap is acceptable. Um, no, so if, 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 that's if, just that, that's my feeling of it, too, because his, uh, his only link to this was that you know, BP and some of the oil companies want to go back in and put a pipeline in. Therefore, it's all about oil. It yeah. all makes sense now. Yeah. yeah no, if something? it was all about oil, we would have left Saddam Hussein in charge. Right. Well, listen, we're going to take a quick break right now. And when we come back, we're going to be talking about switching over to the global warming issue. And you might wonder, what does a person who's an expert on violence and terrorism have to say about this issue? And we'll be back in a couple of minutes. Not only is Al Gore's assessment extremely exaggerated, but there is compelling evidence that many parts of Antarctica are getting colder, and the center of Greenland's ice cap is actually growing, not melting. The evidence for Greenland is quite dramatic. On July 15, 1942, two B-17 flying fortresses and six P-38 Lightnings flying from the United States to England were forced to make an emergency landing on Greenland's southern ice cap. The crew was rescued, but the planes were left on the ice. In 1988, Pat Epps and Richard Taylor led a team to find these missing planes. They expected to find them within 40 feet of the surface. They did not. After several years of failure, the planes were finally found in 1992, one mile from the landing site and 268 feet below the ice surface. The team used hot water to dig a tunnel down to one of the planes to extract it. Dubbed the Glacier Girl, the plane was restored and is now flying again. The planes did not sink to a depth of 268 feet nor did the glacier push them down to that depth. If that were the case, the planes would have been ripped apart. Rather, 268 feet of ice accumulated on them from 1941 to 1992. Although the results are complex, other research shows that much of Greenland's interior ice cap is growing and only its edges are melting. In balance, there is only a slight decline for the entire continent. Al Gore ignores all this and concentrates instead on the melting that is occurring on the edges of Greenland. Ten years later, this is what happened. And here's the melting from 2005. Should we be alarmed about this melting? 800 years ago, the Earth was considerably warmer than it is today. The Vikings settled in southern Greenland and prospered in an agrarian culture. That period is known as the medieval optimal or medieval warm period. And the Vikings grew crops where much of the melting is occurring today. By 1400, when the temperature was about what it is today, the climate had become so cold that the Vikings had to abandon many of their settlements. 
If these same Vikings were here today, they would undoubtedly tell us that this warming is not such a bad thing. When the Vikings were sailing in Arctic waters, and when the Vikings were farming in, in Greenland in soil that's now permanently frozen, uh, the question is then what caused that warming? It certainly wasn't human-produced CO2. The answer may be in the sun. It has been known for centuries that there is a relationship between the number of sunspots and the Earth's temperature. The more sunspots, the warmer the Earth's temperature. It has recently been determined that the more sunspots there are, the more energy the sun emits. However, the increased energy is not sufficient to account for the warming of the Earth. That discovery encouraged the theory that the sun could not cause the warming and that carbon dioxide must be the driving force. While direct changes in solar energy output may not be sufficient to cause the warming, there seems to be other factors at work. It has been known for some time that there is a high correlation between the length of the solar cycle and the Earth's temperature. An emerging theory seems to fit all the data and offers a far better explanation for the current warming than greenhouse gases. Hearing more about that emerging theory as the show progresses, but first we want to carry on with this issue, not just talking about the science, politics, and religion of climate change, but also a bit about the history. Welcome back. You're listening to Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. 661-3600, the number to call. If you want to join the conversation, I'm joined in studio by John Tom with We're together here, John Thompson and myself. John is president of the McKenzie Institute, which studies terrorism, organized crime, political extremism, propaganda, conflict, and other related matters. Now, in another one of your newsletters, John, interesting headline there. Um, the sun says no to global warming. What do you have to say about that? Well, actually... Uh in uh, by the, the major agencies that discuss global temperatures and chart it, mm -hmm. all reported that 2007 was a year of enormous climate change across the whole planet. The average temperature on the surface of the Earth went down by 0.7 degrees, which is one of the biggest shifts that in one year mm -hmm. uh, that we've ever actually measured. Um, and the main cause of this, last year was the bottom end of the, the solar sunspot cycle, the 11-year cycle. But even at the bottom end of the cycle, there's usually one or two sunspots around. Uh, last year, there weren't any. Not only that, when the new cycle began a year ago, there were still none. It's uh, interesting because I saw a picture taken through uh, you know, an, an astronomical telescope. They printed it in National Post there, and it was just like a smiley face. I mean, it was clean. The sun, I never saw the sun with zero spots on it. It was uh, well, perfectly the, yeah. yellow. <laughs> the, the, the last time I checked uh, a couple of days ago, there was just like one sunspot in the face of the sun. Uh, and this has happened before, particularly a period called the Maunder Minimum, uh, which I think was 1645 to 1715. Uh, and when you have a, a period like that, the, world, the, the temperatures across the planet drop, sometimes by two or three degrees. And, of course, the other thing, I, I just remember the first time I started to pay attention to uh, the political aspects of global warming was listening to some kid talking to his uh, girlfriend on a bus saying, you know, that if, if the temperature goes only up by half a degree, I mean, all life on Earth will die. And I'm sort of, I normally don't speak in public. But I, <laughs> you idiot. Do you know anything about paleontology, anything about archaeology or history? Because... What we do have is a history, especially if you look at the works of uh, Brian Egan, one of the world's top archaeologists, uh, any 
paleontologists will tell you. I mean, temperature is always swinging back and forth. And in the last 600,000 years, humanity has evolved because of rapidly fluctuating uh, climate. We're in an interglacial period right now. Any century, the next ice age is scheduled to start thundering in on us. Um, I wonder what we'll be blaming that on when that comes. Well, well, exactly. But this absence of sunspots was one thing. I mean, basically, here are all these people talking about global warming, and suddenly realizing nobody pays attention to the sun or or to current, uh, to what's happening at the time. And, of course, the other side of things, that last year was a disaster for a lot of the world's crops. And that was led to the, the second issue about the paper, which was the, the food shortage. Mm-hmm. Because there is, uh, there's no more margin for error with our grain supplies. Yes, we'll be talking about that in much detail. But you had here, here just a little after, after the next break, but here you had, a, had some interesting uh, observations in your article. You said that in this past winter, which is 2007 and eight. Uh, there was snow in Baghdad, right, where it hasn't been seen for centuries. Yeah. And it snowed twice in Tel Aviv. And uh, also, you know, talking about sea ice coverage in the Arctic last winter is as extensive as it used to be decades ago. Coverage in the Antarctic promises to be at a historic high. Uh, That's that clip I played earlier where they dug that plane up that was buried under so many hundred feet of ice, right, was very much indicative of what you're saying here. And it wasn't crushed by any movement. It was just a a steady buildup. Well, there was a a little story a couple of days ago that in, in Iceland, the authorities have shot two polar bears in the last little while. Polar bears in northern Iceland are a very rare occurrence. It means the pack ice reached the edge of Iceland. That is a very that hasn't happened since the 1940s. And, and yet, John, I will pick up pick up the London Free Press. I'll pick up other publications that say exactly the opposite. They'll say this last season was the hottest, or yeah, the hottest, you know, and just totally opposite information. How can a person make up their mind? And you know, we've got the IPCC, and they're all saying, "No, you can't argue with us. We're 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 right. The Earth is warming. You know, screw you, basically." And that's it. Like, wh- how 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 is there such a big difference? Well, well, someone might sort of react to what I've been saying and saying, well, you're not a scientist, which is quite true. I'm not. Um, on the other hand, Suzuki, I don't think, has been in a lab in 30 years, and Al Gore isn't a scientist either. Uh, and, and the point is, if you're going to talk about science, you actually have to look at the science. Um, I can't understand it. I have to take a look at what the experts tell me. But when something is as substantive as the four agencies that report on the world temperature say it all went down, that's a fact. I can't dispute that. I agree. You know, it, it's um, on, you know, on past shows on, on here on Just Right, uh, we learned how basically global warming believers tend to persuade rational non-believers basically by dismissing their arguments, you know, and labeling them deniers or calling them idiots. I was indirectly called an idiot earlier this week by uh, a Nobel Prize winning professor here in the city of London on this issue. And generally they they claim that the, that the debate is closed and any further discussion on the subject is moot. Now, you know, that's one of the things that has been happening. By the way, the clips you heard earlier were from a film called Global Warming or Global Governments. I have to, I have to thank uh, regular listener Jack to, to put us on to that. I think it's one of the first of probably many to come movies that are going to start the opposite point of view and trying to get in there uh, and uh, deal with some of the issues that Al Gore 
and his religious followers have been foisting on us. So we'll just listen to a little bit more. We're going to go to a commercial break now, listen to a few messages, and you'll hear a few more clips from that. And when we come back, we will be talking about the food shortages and the world food crisis and how that might uh, impact on us. After this, we'll be right back. The major premise of the inconvenient truth is that carbon dioxide is the major greenhouse gas that drives the temperature of the Earth. They can go back 650,000 years. Here's what the temperature has been on our Earth. Now, one thing that kind of jumps out at you is, well, let me put it this way. If my classmate from the sixth grade that talked about uh, Africa and South America were here, he would say, do they ever fit together? <laughs> Most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. But they did, of course. And the, the relationship is actually very complicated, but there is one relationship that is far more powerful than all the others, and it is this. When there is more carbon dioxide, the temperature gets warmer because it traps more heat from the sun inside. The ice core data comes from ice cores drilled to a depth of nearly 12,000 feet, or 2.2 miles, at the Vostok Station in Antarctica. Like Mr. Gore, the United Nations uses this information to prove that Earth's CO2 and temperature are highly correlated. And they are right. However, a high correlation proves nothing. To give an extreme example, there is a 100% correlation that any human that breathes air will die. But that does not prove that breathing air kills people. Far from it, we would all die if we didn't breathe air. But even the correlation used by Mr. Gore in the United Nations is misleading. Notice they kept the two graphs separate. By doing so, the human eye perceives that CO2 causes temperature to rise. However, when the temperature graph is superimposed over the CO2 graph, it becomes apparent that CO2 tends to follow temperature, not precede it, strongly suggesting that the CO2 does not cause the temperature to change, but the temperature causes CO2 to change. This point was made extremely well by London, England's Channel 4 in a documentary they produced called The Great Global Warming Swindle. Humans produce a um small fraction in the single digits percentage-wise of the CO2 that is produced in the atmosphere. Of the 210 billion metric tons of carbon emitted into the atmosphere each year, humans contribute only 6.3 billion tons, or about 3%. Other sources, like vegetation, soils, and the ocean dwarf the amount produced by man. The importance of carbon dioxide is diminished even further by the never-mentioned fact that the overwhelming majority of all greenhouse gases is water vapor and clouds, Water vapor comprises approximately 97% of all greenhouse gases. Carbon dioxide comprises less than 2%, and the balance is made up of methane, chlorofluorocarbons, and nitrous oxide. Many proponents of man-caused global warming claim that water vapor is highly variable across the Earth and from season to season, and therefore is unimportant. Additionally, they claim that CO2 has far greater potential as a greenhouse gas than a small amount would otherwise indicate. While there is some truth in these claims, water vapor remains the dominant greenhouse gas. The effectiveness or potential of greenhouse gases is highly variable due to a host of reasons. At any one time, water vapor accounts for 36 to 70 percent of the total greenhouse gas effects. If clouds are included, it jumps to 66 to 86 percent. Carbon dioxide comes in a distant third by accounting for only 9 to 27 percent. 
And remember, man's activities accounts for less than 3% of the total carbon dioxide. So at a maximum, man is responsible for less than 1% of all the potential greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. A different story from what we hear from the IPCC and other groups. Welcome back. It's Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, 519-661-3600, the number to call if you'd like to join in the conversation or ask John a question or two. John, we've been talking about the world food crisis and issues of that nature, which of course are, which you just brought up before the break. Before we get right in, I just had one quick question on this. You know, we, we hear a lot about biofuels, and, and I see all these uh, headlines here talking about biofuels are going to become a problem, you know, uh, that they're adding to our climate woes and hunger woes and issues like that. And I was just thinking in context of the larger thing we're talking about today, is, is the race to biofuels really about the environment? Or might it be about trying to get the West less dependent on that oil that gives so much power uh, to those nations we were talking about in the first half of the program? It's a mixture of both. Yeah. Uh, that, uh, you know, there, there are people who are very unhappy with uh, our, our dependence on uh, oil from places like Venezuela and Saudi Arabia. Uh, there are also people who think that somehow other biofuels will be cleaner than uh, traditional uh, fuel uh, refined from oil. Um, and then, of course, the, the third matching ingredient is someone started pumping money into it who actually start encouraging farmers to grow material for biofuel projects, and it's taken off from there. I was, uh, okay, so it, it's sort of um, a, a dual thing. It can be both, because I, I can see the incentive for wanting to do this, and even if it drives the price of certain things up, if we supposedly become less dependent on oil, that might also help bring the price of that down again. Uh, but I don't see the trade-off exactly. Look, uh, for, here I'm looking at, uh, who's this, Gwen Dyer's article, March 29th. He's talking about a big, huge headline in the free press, um, Global Food Catastrophe Looms. And he just points out here in his uh, art article that the worst damage is being done by the rage for biofuels that supposedly fight climate change. And he says a huge amount of the world's farmland is being diverted to feed cars and not feed people. He points out in his article that in Thailand, farmers are sleeping in their fields after reports that thieves are stealing the rice, now worth 600 bucks a ton, straight out of the fields. Four people have died in Egypt in clashes over subsidized flour that was being sold for profit on a black market. There have been food riots in Morocco, Senegal, uh, Cameroon. And he calls it the perfect storm and you know which includes all these conditions coming together and he includes in there global warming which is already cutting into food production uh, although i think you might have a slightly different take on that and talking about biofuels and mentions the rainforest in brazil being cleared you know they're, they're cutting it down to make room to grow biofuels which is kind of strange and um but apparently this stuff is policy in europe and the united states even though it might not be best for the environment you go along with all of this, or does this make sense to you, or is it a partial picture? Or? Well, again, some of the facts of the matter speak for themselves, is that uh, we've eaten into the, the surplus. You know, that it used to be six months' uh, surplus supply of grains for the world, and it's now less than, I th it's uh, been eroded down, I think, uh, the last figure I heard was 36 days. Uh, and uh, there's no more margin for error, and last year was a bad year for many of the world's crops. And so... Uh, food prices went up. And it's also clear that if we're having trouble feeding ourselves now with a population of around 6.67 billion, uh, what will things be like when we get up towards 9 billion? 
Um, so we're in trouble now. And of course, for well, me, how, how did we get behind? Uh, why why aren't we always six months uh, supply? Well, in the last uh, nine, for six of the last nine years before two thousand and seven, uh, humanity consumed more than they actually produced. So that nibbled into the stockpiles. And what, so no one noticed it during that period of time? Isn't someone watching that and then saying, okay, well, look, it, it's were, going up, we've got to produce more? There were numerous warnings from uh, from bureaucrats, from industry analysts, and from economists. But again, you know, that that's not really sexy. And, it, 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 you know, we're, we were preoccupied with other concerns, and so nobody really noticed. There is a very alarming quotation you put in your article on this. I think you borrowed it from my science fiction novel. Quote, civilization is only 24 hours and two missed meals deep. <laughs> I think there's some truth to that. Maybe I might stretch it to three or four meals. but um, Well, actually, historically, uh-huh. um, not hunger itself, because once people become hungry, they're, they're preoccupied with survival. But the threat of hunger is a very destabilizing force. Also, then maybe it is just two meals. <laughs> uh, well, yeah. e- it, it's even the threat of missing right. meals. And if you look Symbolically at uh, speaking. Uh, 1848, uh, or the uh, the year of revolutions in Europe, that followed right on the heels of the potato bite, and that killed off like most of Europe's potato crops. Everyone knows about the Irish disaster, but suddenly 20% of everybody's calorie sources had withered in the field across most of Europe. And then you have this year of revolutions. Um, food shortages in Russia and in Germany in 1918, well, 17 and 18, finally triggered revolutions there, not battlefield defeats. The uh, French Revolution, well, the French farmers were doing well. There were food shortages and rising prices inside Paris in 1788 and looked to be repeated in 1789, and that kicked off the mob. Now, none of those, though, were caused by climatic changes and things like that, were they? Or were, were uh, well, 1848 might have been attended by some minor fluctuations. Um, 17, there was a minor tick again in 1788. The temperatures dropped slightly, and again, food, uh, the crop yields were less than they should have been. Now, in, in your article, you, you go back quite a ways in history and point out some of the um, climate disasters we've had with respect to food crops and how it affected certain civilizations in the past. Were there any particular that stick out in your mind that are kind of significant that we should keep in mind with today's circumstances? There's 12,000 years of Mm -hmm. record of climate change and shift and the rise and fall of various cultures. Uh, I suppose one of the the classic cases is when the the medieval warming period ended um, around 1400 or well, that that did, the Vikings in southern uh, ice, uh, southern Greenland didn't leave; they died out. Mm-hmm. At the same time, you had oh, that was a way of leaving. <laughs> yeah, that, oh, yeah, flunked out of life and yeah. got expelled. Yeah. Uh, you also had these huge populations inside um, uh, the Middle American desert. The uh, I can uh, Anasazis, mm-hmm. uh, big urban culture, everything else, and of course they they tapped their environment. Then the the climate cooled off; it got drier. And it wiped them out. You know, very few survivors fled, and most of the rest died. So, I mean, it's climate changes, uh, especially when things have cooled off, have been disastrous. In fact, contrary to it's one of the things. Well, that's that, the thing. It, it, you know, climate change. We're talking about global warming today, but you're suggesting, and I think it's true that mostly it's global cooling that would give us the worser, the worser, the worse conditions. Well, especially for all we know, for example, this absence of sunspots might be how uh, inter- uh, how glacial periods are triggered, for all we know. But historically, mankind has generally done better 
under warmer conditions. Sure, makes sense to me. Listen, we'll take a quick break. I think they have some comments on this very subject on, uh, on these clips that you'll hear. And when we come back, we will continue this conversation. We frequently hear that the incidence and severity of extreme weather, such things as hurricanes, blizzards, droughts, and floods, are increasing, and that global warming is the cause. The argument is that we're going to have an increase of drought, and uh, it's, it's another part of the scare tactics. That, well, more severe weather, more droughts, and so on. Uh, when you look at the long-term record, what you see is the droughts are cyclical. Uh, they do alternate, and but you also see there are far worse droughts in the past than, than uh, we've had in the, in the modern record. History shows that storm frequency and intensity is greatest in colder periods. The extreme weather of the Little Ice Age provides a good example. The storms were much more dramatic. The storms would wipe out villages and hundreds of thousands of people at a time in storms not seen since. The Thames River in England would freeze over every year and there would be ice parties. Crop failures meant starvation and plagues were common. All in all, it was a very difficult time to live. But what about hurricanes today? Doesn't the disastrous 2005 hurricane season prove we are having more hurricanes due to global warming? Data from the National Hurricane Center tend to show just the opposite. During the 100 years from 1851 to 1950, the total number of hurricanes per decade averaged between 15 and 22, with 5 to 8 major hurricanes. The 1940-50 to 50 period jumped to 24 total and 10 major hurricanes. From 1951 through 2000, the average number of hurricanes declined to a total of 12 to 15, with 5 to 6 major hurricanes per decade. This is during the period when CO2 levels were escalating. Although the 2000 to 2010 period is not yet complete, the number of hurricanes appears to be only increasing to the pre-1950 level. While the 2005 season was particularly devastating, the 2006 season had no hurricane striking the U.S. at all. Hurricane experts almost unanimously say that it's highly unlikely that global warming is increasing the frequency and the intensity of hurricanes. In terms of the broad geological perspective, the carbon dioxide concentration of the atmosphere right now is low. Almost all the plants that we live with and depend upon for food evolved in an atmosphere when the CO2 was higher in the atmosphere, much higher than it is today, and higher than we could possibly get it, even if we tried. Well, as a matter of fact, there were times uh, when life flourished on Earth. The uh, time when CO2 levels were something like 10 times current levels was when the dinosaurs were running around. If carbon dioxide levels were 10 or more times what they are today, where did it all go? A look at how carbon is distributed today provides an easy answer. The atmosphere today holds less than 800 billion metric tons of carbon. Soil and vegetation over 2,000. Fossil fuels, 4,000, and oceans, nearly 40,000. However, the greatest sink for carbon is in sedimentary rocks like limestone, which has an estimated 80 trillion metric tons of carbon that has been taken out of the atmosphere. That is 100 times the amount that is currently in the atmosphere. Now, some scientists believe that uh, 9,000 or so years ago, agriculture sprung up all over the world. We saw people domesticate plants in Southeast Asia and Asia and South America and Europe and North America all at about the same time. 
And it also corresponded when the carbon dioxide levels had increased from about 200 parts per million to about 250 parts per million. And it gave agricultural plants a competitive advantage over weeds. It may be that carbon dioxide is the reason we domesticated plants. Concur with most of what you just heard, John? Does that mostly make sense to you or anything that stuck out that didn't make sense to you? No, it, it mostly made sense. Uh, again, uh, there, there's a whole long history in archaeology and paleontology of, of climate change and the evidence um, for things, especially in the period of storms, like in the Maunder Minimum from uh, uh, the late 17th century. Uh, the world has often been much warmer than it is now, uh, even in the last 10,000 years. You know, the, the medieval warmer period was about two or three degrees warmer than it is now, or actually about three degrees warmer than it is today, uh, also around 3000 BC. And uh, there's also been the constant fluctuations because sometimes the Earth wobbles on its axis a bit. The sun has its own cycles, continents drift, everything changes all the time. Um, but one thing that's quite, one of the most interesting papers I read in the last five years was from two paleontologists talking about animals and animal behavior. And mm -hmm. they're pointing out that in the, the fossil record, most of the apex creatures in any particular biosphere were specialists. The last 600,000 years is uh, favored generalists and opportunists. And most of the animals that we know today are also like us, the survivors of 600,000 years of rapid climate change. So the change is part of their adaptation. They've been through it. They've been through it in the past as a species. <laughs> it's also a part of human adaptation. Sure. We're here and because of the, the last 600,000 years. And it just makes sense to me that when things are warmer, we would do better. Now, that having been said, the current sunspot cycle or lack thereof, etc., and some of the other conditions have caused drought conditions. Am I correct in currently going on in the earth that we don't normally experience? It would seem so. Again, the, the real thing to determine what's happening in climate, though, is you can't really tell what's happening today or tomorrow sometimes. But you can puzzle out what happened earlier once you start to look at all the factors. I mean, sure. We Almost can have to look out, at it retrospectively in a way. Yeah, we can figure out where we've been. <laughs> Figuring out where we're going is a little more difficult. It's like a philosopher I heard once. He says, the people who lived in the Dark Ages didn't know that was called the Dark Ages at the time, you know, kind oh, of. For them, it was pretty, it wasn't at right. all. Now, with, with the implications of, of global cooling and, and possible food shortages, you made one comment. We've only got about, oh, I say five or seven minutes left on the show, uh, that we've got a real wild card here, and you call that wild card Iran. And uh, how does that fit into that? You had a lot of uh, issues that you brought up here in your article. I'm just curious. Well, well there's... Because wild cards tend to change our expectations very unexpectedly. Well, remember, we've got, uh, besides uh, climate change from an unexpected direction uh, and a source we forgot about and the food shortage, there's also the fuel shortage. And the two of these are giving us sort of a left-right punch to everybody's economy. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're going to cause difficulties. I mean, I'm not talking about anything apocalyptic for us, but, you know, if, if you checked out the price even of a bag of pasta lately, it's all going up. Everything, all our prices are going up. Uh, and there's a lot of tension around. And now this is bad enough, but remember, there are other countries that are even more unstable than any Western democracies. And the food and the fuel crisis is also working on them. And this might be promoting aggressive behavior by some countries. And the one I'm worried about the most is Iran. 
because Iran is... In terms of supplying its own food or... or well, yeah, uh, but also internal pressure because of rising prices and ec poor economic performance. But you've got a revolutionary government mm -hmm. with an external focus that is has a history of relying on external uh, aggression to try and unite its population behind it. Uh, and at the same time, these are people who are very aware of what will happen to them if they're ever overthrown. And then you've got their president, who's got these apocalyptic fantasies uh, about bringing around the Mahdi and everything else, and have been working on a nuclear weapons program. So there is a recipe here for a major conflict very soon. Now, the problem with Iran is that is where it sits. And the Iranian strategy would probably be to Geographically, use, you mean. Yeah. yeah. Right, uh, to try and close the Straits of Hormuz, to try and use its Scud missiles to bombard refineries in Saudi Arabia, and a program of international sabotage. They've been putting agents in place in a number of countries, including Canada, as a recent report, but that's, that's a true story. I know that's true. And think about uh, when a conflict with Iran starts, where we try to prevent them from having nuclear weapons, the nuclear weapons they've threatened to use, um, watch what happens to the price of fuel. That is really going to kick everybody hard in the pocketbook. Is maybe that part of the reason for the move to biofuels? I, when, when I see something like that, I always wonder, okay, this doesn't seem economically sound on the surface of it, so I think there's another motivation behind it. It could be political to protect uh, as much of our supplies as we can by, by moving to alternatives. Well, at the same it, time, there are ample sources of oil in North America that mm -hmm. have not been exploited, largely because the environmental lobby isn't all that keen on uh, the North Slope of Alaska, the oil sands, uh, oil shales in the United States. So we have this seesaw between the, the environmentalists and, and trying to do economic development, oil self-sufficiency. One of the, the uh, biofuels compromise is one of the few that was acceptable, and now the effect that's been having on food prices is hard-hitting across the whole planet. So it, 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 it seems like... We're sitting on the edge of a powder keg, kind of. Or is there a way to avoid that powder keg? I know I'm asking you this at a bad time. We've got about two minutes to wrap up here. But what would you say is the biggest thing we have to look out for? Oh, Lord. Um, well, actually, it's, it's difficult to say. I mean, this, this is a very... The, the, the perfect storm analogy is starting to come into play, that we're looking at a whole series of interlaced factors. If you look at a crisis that's only got a single factor then a single solution set presents itself. But here we have a whole series of intertwined factors. Um, our problems with food. We should be creating more food. We should be focusing on this. We should be trying to find ways to reduce our, our oil consumption and secure supplies. Those make sense. Just economically, yeah. Yeah. Trying to keep Iran under control makes sense, especially with the current leadership. Uh, and then, of course, we can't do a thing about the sun, except wait. I mean, maybe tomorrow the sunspots will be all over its face again, or it might not be the case for 40 or 50 years. Yeah, that's one thing we certainly cannot predict. I do know that uh, they have noticed the uh, ice caps melting on Mars. and they, I, even On the other hand, they're growing here. Yeah, well, this is already, they might be doing that there. I, I, I know even 10 years ago when I commented on the show here, when I was doing it with Jim Chapman, that observations were being made in 1996, 97, that the moon, the surface of the moon was hotter than what they had been used to. So I'm thinking, well, that's got to be the sun acting there. So 
is the is the whole environmental movement a plus to this or a negative to the world situation? I think they confuse the issue. Yeah. Um, but it's it's so much easier. It's a human thing to want to say we're somehow at fault, so therefore the solutions lie with us if we only change the Then you can take sort of control of it. Yeah, where you, you can't do anything about orbital, orbital mechanics and the, the sun's own nuclear reactions. Interesting. I think I think that's where we'll have to leave it. John, I want to thank you again for joining us for the second time. Hope we have you again back in the future. And I guess that's it for us this week, folks. So join us again next week when we'll continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, and think right. Take care. Fade into color, color into black and white. So here's a stupid conversation for you. Hey, African lion safari's closed. Ah, let's just jump the fence. <laughs> stupid conversation. <laughs>